Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. All right, who here remembers, and if you're not at this age yet, I apologize, but yeah, the power of imagination is a strong one. Who here remembers getting their driver's license and driving for the first time? Now, this was something I was surprised. I grew up like way out in the country. There was nothing around. And so the ability to drive a car was, for me and all my friends growing up, you structured your 16th birthday around going to the DMV and taking your driver's test, Uh, which is interesting because as I've been around more students that are in urban areas, especially around here, they're like, nah, I'm good. Like, maybe when I'm 21, I'll drive. But right now, like, I'm pretty good not driving, which, not good or bad, I just think is interesting because it's so different than my experience. And the reason why I wanted to drive was freedom. Like, I could go anywhere at any time before my curfew, right? I could go anywhere and still have the ability to get back in that time. It just, and I can clearly remember after I like the windows rolled down because there was no air conditioning and just turning up the music you picked because for, for a decade plus, you were told by your parents, like, I'm driving, I'm in control of the radio. And now I'm driving. I am in control of the radio. And I get to play whatever I want. I get to play it too loud. Like after a while, when you get cleared, like you can go pick up your friends That's the biggest power trip I think I've ever felt in my life, pulling into a friend's driveway and honking and they get in the car and we can go drive anywhere. Um, And I didn't do good things with my freedom. It's always like 7-Eleven and Walmart. Like that's where we went with this incredible freedom. But when you're in that place where you're deeply desiring this freedom of driving and you want your driver's license, after you get it, there's some other things that weren't really a part of the fantasies of driving. It's like, okay, well, this is your car now, but a car is a responsibility. And that comes with insurance. You got to pay for gas now. Any maintenance, anything that goes wrong, like that's you. You got to fix it. Do you know how to fix a flat tire? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, this isn't quite as much fun as I thought it was. The thought I had was all convertibles and open road. This is like responsibility and working and having to take care of this thing. I had a friend that just didn't put oil in his car and ran a rod right through that engine. Like that, it was done. The engine was done. And you just have to figure out, well, what are we going to do now? We got to buy a new engine. How do you have to work on that? That kind of responsibility. And the reason why I want to begin there this morning is I think there's a lot of times in life where we have these desires and we have these thoughts about things that we want. And we can usually, we live in this fantasy of what it will do, what it will be. And what I mean by that is like a new job, a new house, a new place to live. Do you have a city in your mind that maybe one, probably you've never even been, but every once in a while you're like, what if we moved to Albuquerque? Like, you just have, like, but Denver. We should probably move to Denver. You have this city, this place that, like, I could always move there. That, it would be great there. And if you ever get there, you realize, like, it's actually a lot like here, just with different zip codes. There's, like, different weather. There's different people. But there's actually a lot of these same things that aren't a part of this fantasy. See, what we're going to talk about this morning is our desires, what are the things that are some of our best? God is 
They expose more to us about who we are and about who God is if we're willing to sit with them for a while and say, why are they here? What does this desire mean? What does it look like? And so to get there, we are going to be continuing on in our message series that we're calling In the Desert. Uh, As a reminder, we introduced it a couple of weeks ago, but the book of Numbers that you find in the Bible, which sounds like uh, a book written by a CPA, is actually, in the Hebrew, it's Bemidbar, which translates to In the Desert of. And it's a whole book about leaving Egypt You're not in slavery anymore, which the Israelite people would have been in Egypt, but they're not to the promised land, which was the dream, the vision, the hope that you're going to this place where God has given you. God will give you this place where you will be safe, you will be protected, and you can be a nation. And they're in between those two places. And we're utilizing this this trip through the book to to, uh, entertain the, the deserts, the wilderness places in our own lives where we have these spaces where we're not in the space that we were before, maybe in our relationships, in our work life, in all kinds of different places, but we're not yet where we're going. There's been a change. There's been a shift within us, and it can leave us wanting. It can leave us really wanting to have something else that we don't have. Desires And this wilderness, the wilderness periods in our lives bring out our desires more strongly than any other time in our lives because we don't have. If you're in a literal desert as the Israelites were, there's always something to want because you're in a place of nothing. It's just sand. And usually what you want in the desert is anything but sand. You want and you're desiring and you're having this. So we're going to look at a great story today that covers this. So we're going to be looking at Numbers 11. If you have your Bible with you, if you have it on an app, I encourage you to read along. Uh, we're going to hop through Numbers 11. And just to set up some of the context, um, they've gone into the desert, but there's this long stretch where the Israelite people and Moses, who led them out of Egypt, spend at Mount Sinai. Um, And if you ever saw the Ten Commandments, this big epic movie, this all happens at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain. He has this experience of God, and God gives him these two tablets. Um, And Moses comes down and like, hey, look what I've been doing. Uh, And the first time, they were like, oh, we didn't know that you were coming back. We made a goal. God, to be kidding me. And break. We are so sorry about that. And Moses is like, you've got to be kidding me. And breaks the tablets. They melt down the, the golden calf. They drink the water of this as to remember the bitter taste of what it is like to forget so quickly who led you out of Egypt, who brought you into freedom. Um, and I love that story because I think it helps us remember we do the same thing. We all make golden calves. We all forget about who God is and how God has led us through different periods of time in our lives. And I think sometimes we utilize the freedom that God has given us, the way that God is leading us different places to be like, hey, I'll take over now. Thanks. Like, I got a golden calf to make. I got some other things that I think might lead me through the next place. So that's where the Israelites in this story in Numbers 11, that's where they're coming from. They're coming from Mount Sinai. So reading in Numbers 11 and starting in verse 4, it says this, the rabble with them begin to crave other food. So it's never good things don't come from that first line. Don't hang out in rabbles. They never get good raps. It's never good things don't come from rabbles. The rabble began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if we only had meat to eat, 
We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. That's my favorite line. Remember what they were in Egypt. Slaves. They were slaves, so they were forced to work for the Egyptians all day for no pay. And they're looking back at their slavery and like, but remember all that fish? We didn't even have to pay for it. They didn't even have money because they were slaves. Every food that they were given by their slaveholders would have been free. Free. Also, the cucumbers, the melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Continuing on in verse 7, it says, The manna, manna was like coriander seed and looked like a resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a handmill or olive oil. Then they cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves. It tasted like something made with olive oil. Then the, when the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Um, Something that's interesting about the manna, so this was their food. They're literally in the desert, so there's not enough food to, to sustain this entire population of people. So in the dew in the morning, this manna would appear on the ground. And here we get a little more knowledge of like what it is, like this flat kind of bread thing and what they would do with it. I think it's interesting that they would, like after a while, you start preparing it in different ways. You start experimenting. You do some manna recipes that you pass around the camp because, you know, we get it every day. What are we going to do with it? The descriptions of it, though, are interesting. I've always gotten the picture in my head that manna would be kind of stale, dry, tasteless. Here it says something made with olive oil, And another place in Numbers, it says it tastes like honey, tastes like bread, and it tastes like olive oil. Those were the three flavors that they put in it. So not bad. Something that tastes good. Same word that they would use, it's really interesting that they use to talk about the taste of it, is the same word that they would use for mother's milk. That the taste of the bread, in the same way that a mother is keeping a baby alive day after day, the Israelites are surviving as a people on the providence of God, that God is nursing a people. Uh, And it's important because this imagery is going to be used again and again. And also just to think for a second, what a relationship with God would look like there. I think there's a way in where we live today, we're so disconnected from this kind of reality, this kind of daily dependence on God wherein you're in a desert with that many people and your only food is, suppl- is supplied by via miracle every morning, your understanding and relationship of God probably looks a little different. So they're complaining. The rabble has got them going. And then in 11, verses 11, why have you brought this trouble on This is Moses talking to God. Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? What I love about this part of Moses talking with God is this feels like every parent when their child is doing something wrong and you're talking to the other person. Would you get your kid out of here? Like all of a sudden, the ownership shifts very differently. When my son does a handstand, he is my son. When my son throws a brick, that's Sally's kid. That is, I don't know where he came up with that, but he's not my kid anymore. And what I love that Moses is talking about is like, 
these kids that you gave me, they're not mine. And I love this language of like, why am I responsible for these kids like I gave birth tonight? And like I'm supposed to sustain them. These are your kids, God. They're not mine. And if you look at this whole story, this wilderness experience as kind of a road trip, like the kids are fighting in the back and Moses is wanting to turn the car around. Like that's the stage of the story that we're in right now. Continuing on in verses 18 and 19, this is what God says in response. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it just for one day or two days or five, 10 or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? It's this fascinating picture of what God says. Ultimately, you've missed a part of this whole, you want something off menu for what we're doing here. You've missed a part of this whole experience of God being with the people. You want meat? We will give you meat. And what's interesting about this is that if you, and I encourage you to go and read through Numbers 11, they're really wondering, like, how is this possible, God? How will you give us meat? And how will we have so much of it that we can eat it for a month? We're in a desert. It doesn't support that much life. In verses 31 and 32, we see the how. And by the way, this is supposed to be ridiculous. So it really soak in the ridiculousness of what we're about to read. Now, a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. Okay, let's pause there. Two cubits is about three feet. Three feet of quail high, a day's walk all around camp. Stroll a day, a day's walk. That's not like an afternoon stroll. A day I've woken up and I will walk today as far as I can go. That is how much quail is around. I have practical questions about how they navigated this. Did they make like labyrinths of quail that you had to walk through to get all this? This is an insane amount of quail. It says all that day and night and the next day the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. I had a Simpsons joke, but it didn't really come together. So we're going to move on. This is the equivalent to about 4,000 pounds of quail per family. Did you hear me? 4,000 pounds of quail per, per, per family. One and three quarter tons worth of quail. Now, the reason why I bring this up is if you're like, how? That, that doesn't make, that is so much quail. Like, how do we even get and who's collecting that much of the story isn't to get lost in the functions and the weight and who's collecting that much quail. And like after half a ton, you're like, we're good, right? Like we're, there's, no, there's no refrigeration. What are we going to do with all this quail? The point of the story is to say the ridiculousness of the response you want blessing. You're desperate for something. This is your greatest desire. You want meat? Here you go. 
Never forget who you are asking to provide for you. The God who has the entire universe at his disposal. And God brings about an absurd response to what they are saying because it heightens the ridiculousness of the whole situation. When you read something in the Bible that seems outlandish and ridiculous, it's probably trying to illustrate something that's outlandish and ridiculous. And this is a a big thing. I want to say it every single time. Don't read ridiculous things in the Bible and go, "Mm, uh uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. We don't tell stories about, if it was normal, they wouldn't have written it down. We don't tell stories about the normal stuff. We tell stories about the absurd things because they expose something to us that needs to be exposed. And the more ridiculous it is to say, well, what is that exposing? What is that showing us? I think, in part, this deep desire, this longing, is something that I've seen many times before. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you've ever traveled outside of the country, you've gone somewhere else, there's something, um, because I was an outreach pastor for a while, so I would lead these trips, and there's something fairly predictable you see probably about two to three days in. Someone in the group starts talking about hamburgers, Because wherever you are around the world, there probably aren't hamburgers. And like, I can't wait till I get back. First stop from the airport, I'm going to Burgerville. Or we're going to hit in and out. Like, oh, you're getting the milkshake? Double animal style. I'm going to get the fries. I'm going to get the milkshake. And other people are like, oh, you're getting the milkshake? I'm definitely getting a Coke. And you go into deep and elaborate descriptions and talk about the meal you will have in a week or a week and a half when you get back from this trip. What's interesting is why do people do that? It's really common. It's not surprising. It happened on literally every trip I have ever been on and led. At some point, someone talks about that. Because you're in a place where everything is different. You're reminding yourself of something safe, predictable, and that you know. You're trying to get out of that environment, and mentally you are escaping to another place. And one of the things that we try to encourage people is to not do that, not because hamburgers are bad, not because you shouldn't go get a hamburger when you get back, but when you're having and fantasizing about something that isn't here, you're missing this. You're missing this experience. This talk about meat... It's not about the quail. Are you with me? This story is not about the quail. It's a desire for a reality they're imagining is true. And they're not asking questions about why that desire is there. They're not asking about why they have it. They're just complaining it and making it louder and louder. And they're putting it before Moses and they're putting it before God. Meet this, this need, this desire. But no one ever asked, if we get meat, will we be good then? Let's just say it's a quail, all right? We don't get to the absurdity of how much quail. And it says in the story, they loathed it while it was still in their teeth. (laughs) It was still full in their mouth and they hated it. What if it was reasonable? Was it just a quail? And they all had a quail. Would that have been the end of the complaining of the Israelite people in the wilderness? No. No. You know yourself. You know humanity too well. That's not how we work. 
That's not what we do. Ultimately, we long for something we don't have, not because we even want it, but there's something we're trying to avoid about where we are. There's something difficult and hard that this space and this time is bringing to the surface. And so if we fantasize about our desire, about the next thing, about the next place, about where we could go, I don't have to be here. I can live there. And what's interesting is, is God's providence and protection, has it not been enough? Has God been cruel in some way by withholding me? I mean, sure, we have manna. Sure, I mean, God's here in a pillar of fire at night so we can see. Sure, God leads us physically in a presence of a cloud during the day. Sure, God has given us protection from anyone who had war or taken us over. Sure, God has bring water out of a rock so that we could all drink. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. But what about meat, though? It's ridiculous because it is. And God meets them and matches the ridiculousness of the request to expose something. So what I want to talk about is your desires. I made a list of some different desires. We want to talk about desires of our heart. And I'm not just meaning like bad things. In this story, you can say they wanted meat and that seems a little bit ridiculous. Isn't that a bad thing? No, 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 no. I'm talking about all of our desires. We just want to say, what is the thing that you really want? Is it something like friends? Are you like, I wish I had more people to hang out with. Usually one of the places that exposes that is like a Friday or a Saturday night and you're sitting at home and you're like, I don't know who to call. I want to go do something, but I don't know who to talk to if I, I have just had more friends. Money. Look at your bank account. And you're like, we're close. But if I didn't have to transfer that little bit of money at the end of the month or between paychecks, if I just had a little bit more money, a little bit more income, then we would be okay. Maybe it's fame. I wish people knew me. I wish what I did was important. I wish people recognized me when I went out to eat or a place to be. Maybe it's that you want a home or a different home, another place. If we just had an extra bedroom, you know, if we just had not a full bath, I just want like a half bath more. If we just had a little bit of a yard, that would be great. I just want a car that starts every time I get in it. Or we just need a car that's a little bit bigger. If we just had that third row of seating, I think we'd be set up smarter. I wish I had something interesting to add to these conversations. I wish I knew a little bit more. They start talking about international politics. I have no idea what they're talking about. I'm already out. I wish I was more informed. I wish I knew more. Maybe you want more peace. Everything is so chaotic. Right now is the only time you have sat still for any length of time for this week other than sleeping, and you just want things to stop. You just want things to slow. You want more happiness. You want to travel more. You want to have kids. You want to have a better relationship with your family, or you want to repair something that was broken with your parents or a sister or a brother. You want a different job. You want better spirituality. You wish you could raise your hands higher during worship. You wish you could pray for longer. You want more power or influence at work. No one listens to me. If only they would listen to me. Maybe it's physical strength. I wish I was a more physically imposing person. I wish I could just get eight hours of sleep every night. I wish I had a partner that we could really do life with. I wish I had someone in my life that we could journey together. I wish I was more successful. I hope one of those connected with you. 
that these kind of desires, some of them deep, some of them on the surface level, this is the thing that gnaws at you a little bit. You wish you had. It was just that little bit more. And the reason why I want you to identify it is we're going to kind of walk through what, what do we do with our desires? What is the story from Numbers kind of helping us see about our desires? So whatever if it is, even if you're like, well, I guess I wish our house was like a little bit bigger. I'm mostly satisfied, Kurt. I mean, <laughs> I'm barely even coming to church. I'm pretty desire-free. That's my life. Then pick something you just have a little bit more of a desire with because it will be helpful to walk through together. The first thing to know about your desires, if it was those or something else, of some, is desires aren't bad. Wanting more of something isn't bad. And a lot of times we have these desires, we feel these desires, and how we're met, usually in spiritual terms in church or other people, is, well, why can't you be more happy? Why can't you be more content? You shouldn't have those desires. And when we believe that the desires that we have for something more are intrinsically bad, it's not okay to have those desires. What we normally do is we repress them. We push them away. We try to ignore them. We pretend they don't exist. And that isn't going to help us. Your desires, any desire that you have, it's not bad. We put all the ones up on the screen that are appropriate for church. Hear me now. All of your desires aren't bad. It's just information. We're going to talk about what we do with them. But usually we have a desire, we have a thing, we become embarrassed by it because we think people will judge us or people will make friends with us. And usually what we do is like, what are you complaining about? When I was growing up, it's like, eat all the food in your plate. There's kids starving in China. We always play this comparison game that makes any desire we have bad or not worthy because someone else has it worse. So what are you unhappy for? No, 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 no. Don't do that to your desires. Hold on to them. Sit with them. Don't repress them. Don't acknowledge. They're there for a reason. They're there for a reason. Next thing I want you to do is to get curious about your desire. Why do I want this thing? Why is this thing pulling me and leading me on? Why am I obsessed with finding the right pair of shoes or, you know, the most comfortable walking shoes or the best workout clothes or the perfect vehicle for me to be in or the right neighborhood or the right school for my kids or the right job? Why is that thing there? If we don't repress it, if we don't push it away, we can get curious about it and we can ask more and more questions about why is this thing here? Normally what we do is, uh, if you have ever watched a dog, and you're normally around here, it happens a lot, you're with a dog or you watch someone walking a dog and a squirrel runs by, that dog is off. That dog is going, you know? Or like this scene, we got Doug from Up, right? Squirrel. It's this constant distraction and running and going. Do you think the dog has ever asked itself what it plans to do if it ever captures that squirrel? Or do, do you think that's the only squirrel? Do you think there's a squirrel that has constantly eluded you, and if you get that squirrel, then you'll be done? Well, there's hundreds upon millions of squirrels around. There's always another squirrel to chase. There's always another thing to go. And what are you going to do with it if you get it anyway? 
I feel a lot like our desires, when we're not curious about them, are like squirrels to dogs. They pop up, they enter our head. We either repress them or we fully entertain them and we run chasing after them, never asking, what will you do if you get it? What then? So maybe it's the job or the relationship or the thing with your family or whatever your desire is. Have you ever asked the question, well, what are you going to do if you get it? There's this great story that was written earlier this year about the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. If you don't like sports, hang with me. We'll be here quick. His name's Aaron Rodgers, and he's a great quarterback. And a number of years ago, he led the Green Bay Packers to the Super Bowl, and they won. And he was named the most valuable player of the Super Bowl. Now, in football, the National Football League around the world is the premier place to play football. And over the whole regular season, you play all your games, going through the playoffs and winning the Super Bowl is the pinnacle. That is the top of the mountain. And what was fascinating about the article is he went back and he talked about being on the bus, driving back to the hotel after the game. And he said, I thought it would have felt different. He had been training his whole life. His dreams had been filled with winning the Super Bowl, getting to the Super Bowl and winning it. And then it happened And it wasn't it. It wasn't it. If we never think about what it would look like if we get the thing that we're desiring after, the thing we're chasing after, the thing we want, we're missing something that that desire is there to teach us. Here's the last thing that I believe, and hang with me on this one. I believe that God is ready to meet us at the root of every one of our desires. I think God is ready to meet us at the root of every one of our desires. Every desire. No matter how bad, no matter how wrong, no matter how twisted it may be, if it's still twisted and wrong and if it feels something that isn't right, keep going deeper and to ask, why is this thing here? Why is this thing there? I think for the Israelites in the desert, their deep desire for meat, their deep desire for quail, to just have this thing, was they wanted to have a God that was with them and was protecting them and was leading them. They wanted to have a God that was supplying for them. But being by obsessed by the quail, they weren't able to see the ways that God had already provided for them in incredible ways. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't have wanted meat. It's okay to want meat. It's okay to even request me. But the question is, how are you pursuing that desire? Are you pursuing it with a grateful heart? Are you pursuing it with a God, you have been so gracious for us. You've been so good to us. And we, but we have this desire for meat. You can still engage your desires, but are you willing to see why is it there? And ultimately, is it something that is good and planted within you? If God made each and every one of us and God's image is in each and every one of us, then the roots of our desires are rooted in God. We find something good about who we are and what we want. If we never ask the questions, if we either fully chase or we fully repress our desires, we can get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. If we get curious about why our desires are there, we get to the root of the heart of it, I think we're going to find something beautiful and amazing. You know how I just said, you can still have the same desire, you can still chase after it. 
one of the phrases that I really like is that the destination may not change, but the person who arrives there can. If you have these desires, if you have these things you want, you might still achieve that. You might still get that desire. You might still see that desire fulfilled. We're not promised it, but it can happen. But the question is, which version of you is going to show up at the end of your desire? Which part of you is going to be there when you get what you've been looking for, when you get what you've been searching after? And one of the things that I think is helpful and how we want to close this morning is I think that the sole work of desire is gratitude. The sole work of desire is gratitude. When we've acknowledged that we have a desire, we're, we're saying it's not bad, we're sitting with it, we're acknowledging it, we're not repressing or chasing after it, we're asking, why is it here? What is here to teach me? That's a good first step. The good next step is to be able to express our gratitude. Now, there's a way where gratitude is used to not acknowledge our desires or to push them aside or to call them bad. We just keep on saying, well, I'm grateful, I'm grateful, I'm grateful. And if I say all the things I'm grateful enough, then I won't want things anymore. That's not the kind of gratitude I'm talking about. The kind of gratitude I'm talking about is, have you practiced being grateful for what you have so that when you encounter something more or something difficult, you have trained yourself to be grateful there? If we've only ever practiced in desire, that is preparing ourselves for more and more desire. If we practice in gratitude, it prepares us for greater and greater levels of gratitude. If you study English and go to France, you're not prepared for that place. If you've studied French, when you get to France, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I know what's happening here. I can ask for things off the menu. I can navigate this place better. The destination may not change, but the person who arrives there can. And so we had you pass around a piece of paper. Did they pass around or we're doing that now? Yeah, I didn't say that earlier. That's on me. That's my bad. We're passing around a piece of paper. On the back of that paper, it has a place for prayer. Here's what I want you to do for just a couple more minutes. And following in what more was leading in worship, we're going to have just a time of silence and reflection. My invitation for you is to write down, what do I desire right now? And to put that on a list, half of your sheet. Then on the other half, say something that's tied to that desire, or maybe at the root of that desire, what am I grateful for? You can always have more friends. Are you grateful for the friends that you have? You can always have more money. None of us are all filled up. No one's bank account says, all done. So we be grateful for the things that we have. We can always have another place to live. Are we grateful for where we are now? And I think these things can start to bring out different aspects of our soul and they can prepare us to arrive at the end of the things that we desire, better equipped to see the God who made us and better to see how God made us. So I encourage you to write those things down. I'll give you a couple minutes and then we'll end.